everyone, and welcome to another fun-filled and surprising episode of Chop On. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. This is a very special one because we won't be alone later on, but we're going to save that for later. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ChopOnPod. We have our link tree attached to those pages to find the right spot to listen. We are on Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you name it, we're on it. Once you find the right platform for you, please like, rate, review. Most importantly, though, please subscribe so that you do not miss your fix of cricket and wrestling. My name is Rajiv, and I am here with the one and the only true cricket journalist himself, Bharat Sundaresan. Hello, brother. How are you doing this week? Doing well, Rajiv. It's week four already. I can't believe we're about to celebrate our month anniversary. It's gone by quickly. It's been a lot of fun, which tells you it's a good thing. It hasn't felt like we've been doing this forever. (laughs) And it's been a busy week. Uh, Ollie has started her puppy school. Oh. Sunday mornings are occupied. Uh, She didn't perform too well on day one. So I'm just a little worried that she might go academically go the way I did. I was outstanding <laughs> at preschool as well. I was ranked first, I remember. Yeah, but that's, I never hit those heights again. My true, <laughs> I was exposed when I went to proper school, which I hope doesn't happen with her because she was really good at preschool. But first day of puppy school, not so good. And uh, here she is chewing on the laptop wire still. So uh, <laughs> things aren't improving. But otherwise, it's been um, a busy week finishing up with... Uh, some um, promotional stuff for the Suresh Rana book. And uh, this morning, I had a very important discussion with Isha because the schedule for uh, the cricket season in Australia for the next summer has been announced. Big summer, of course, the Ashes, uh, first ever test against Afghanistan. Uh, And I just checked my schedule and I had to tell her, all right, Isha, so I'll leave Adelaide on November 25th. And in all likelihood, you'll see me next sometime in late February. (laughs) Oh, man. He was very happy because this has been the longest I've been home <laughs> ever in my life. So she just not uh, used to seeing me first thing when she wakes up. Then I drop her off at school and she comes back home. I'm there. You know, she goes to bed. I'm there. I'm just everywhere. So I think she kind of was quietly happy that uh, there's a busy schedule, busy summer coming up. But what I'm excited about the most, Rajiv, is... Uh, what we have coming up on the show later on. But before that, I think we should get started. I think we should. And yes, everybody, if you want to, go look for the Believe book, Suresh Raina with Bharat Sundaresan. I believe it's it's this week, right, that it comes out, or is it next week? Yeah, um, I think it is this week, which it uh, uh, it's supposed to come out. I think the, if, if things have been delayed because of the situation in India, of course. Uh, of course. Uh, it was supposed to come out a little earlier, but uh, no, everything's on track. Uh, the promotional team um, from Penguin and the Suresh Raina team, I was on a Zoom call with them recently. I didn't have much to say for a change because they <laughs> had all these great plans in place. Uh, I was just a stooge. So no, it's, it's, it's looking exciting. I'm... Uh, very happy to see the love the book has already received before it's come out. And uh, yeah, can't wait for people to give me my, give me uh, their honest feedback. 
Awesome. I can't wait to read it. I'm looking forward to it. If you've never listened to us before, we are taking topics related to cricket and wrestling, and we will discuss them for five minutes maximum each. If we end a topic before the five-minute mark, then fantastic. Otherwise, we cut ourselves off at the five-minute mark. We know we have listeners that love cricket but don't know wrestling, or they love wrestling and don't know cricket. So we also try to enlighten our listeners by having a term or rule of the week and also a history lesson so with that being said let's get right into it it is time to rotate the strike i present topics and we go back and forth discussing these and here is our first topic wrestlemania backlash took place this past sunday may 16th here in america matches included bobby lashley versus drew mcintyre versus braun Strowman for the wwe championship damian priest versus the miz in a lumberjack match we might talk about that a bit later bianca belair versus bailey for the smackdown women's championship rhea ripley versus oscar versus charlotte flair for the raw women's championship the dirty dogs dolph ziggler and robert rude versus dominic and Rey mysterio for the smackdown tag team championship and roman reigns versus cesaro for the wwe universal championship butteth what match stood out to you the most? And did this deserve the name WrestleMania Backlash? Um, I'll answer your second question first, Raju. I think it did because there were a lot of uh, matches from WrestleMania, which weren't a direct repeat, but you know the, the storylines were laid out during WrestleMania but or in the lead up to WrestleMania or just after WrestleMania. So I think... In hindsight, yes, I think it, um, it it stuck well. It was a great marketing idea to, you know, have two pay-per-views with WrestleMania and the title. That's, I don't know why it took them so long to think of that. Right. Um, the match that I know everybody's been talking about zombies, and I'm sure we will talk about it a lot as the show goes on. But for me, I was going into that pay-per-view, Rajiv, and I think I told you this last week as well, Off-air. I was very worried about the Cesaro-Roman Reigns match. Of course, he wasn't going to win. Of course, Cesaro was not going to win the title uh, in his first attempt. But I've, I was getting maybe two weeks per week, I was getting these bad Billy Gunn versus Rock vibes from 1999, if I'm not mistaken, after Billy Gunn was king of the ring. Um, you know, when The Rock just buried Billy Gunn. And I was a massive Billy Gunn fan. I would love it whenever Jim Ross would say uh, the purest athlete in the in the company. And he was so fluid. He was so brilliant. And, um, you know, maybe not the best with his promos, but he wasn't too bad. Um, you know, and, um, you know, just the way The Rock buried Billy Gunn, I've never really, uh, never really gotten over it as a Billy Gunn fan. Uh, but... And, you know, Cesaro, again, extremely athletic. I mean, maybe 10 times more athletic um, than uh, things that he does. Definitely more creative than Billy Gunn. Uh, And he's always had issues with the promo. But I remember really getting into Cesaro. You know when? During the 2014 uh, Football World Cup. And Mm. WWE had this thing with Cesaro, Wade Barrett, who again, I was a huge fan of. I would talk about, like, you know, the teams in in the World Cup and just, like, I don't know. It was it was it was not bad, and uh, that's the first time I heard Cesaro talk about like stuff apart from wrestling. And I was like, this dude's funny. He's got he's got personality. But I think they they built up that storyline well two weeks into the pay per view where uh, they finished with him on top um, SmackDown, and uh, which told me that yeah, they, it's not going to be a burial. 
but uh, I think the match really lived up to it. Every to the hype, Cesaro was amazing as ever. I mean, he's never bad in the ring. I think Roman Reigns um, carried him well in the ring. I thought it was they had great ring chemistry. Um, and even though we knew Roman Reigns was going to win, it um, it looked Cesaro uh, finishing strong, right? And um, the old cliche that we hear from all our podcasting, ex wrestling, or rest, it's not. Uh, What's what's the term? Who it's not who goes over it, who who gets over. Correct. Yeah, and um, I really think Cesaro did. And look, him and Seth Rollins will be a will be a great rivalry, which could, you know, go on for a few months. So for me, that was the standout match. They were uh, also, I mean, Rey Mysterio, Mysterio and his son winning the title. Yeah, you know, it's amazing, right? I was a child when Rey Mysterio was like, you know, making his mark in the mid to late 1990s. And here he is still winning titles and now with his son. I don't know. I almost felt like a connect to them winning their tag team titles. Right. And so for me, it was the triple threat match with Rhea Ripley, Asuka and Charlotte. I thought that was fantastic. They had Adelaide Zone, Adelaide Adelaide Zone. Zone Rhea Ripley. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of really good psychology in that match. They told a great story as well. The action was fantastic, and there were some spots that I never would have even thought of. Um, I really liked when at the beginning of the match, Charlotte tried to slip out of the ring and was like, okay, go you two. And then they both slipped out on either side of the ring to kind of block her in. So they did many things that I thought were great. And at the end of that match, I just found myself smiling. And that's how I knew they did something great with that match. The one that also stood out to me, but not really in a good way, was that zombie lumberjack match that you were talking about. <laughs> I, for the longest time, I did not watch WWE regularly. Uh, it's been maybe six years since I was I've been watching it weekly before we started doing this. Right. And there's, this, is, this is the sort of thing that showed me why. I mean, it didn't really have anything to do with anything other than being tied into the movie Army of the Dead. This felt like a Raw or SmackDown angle and not a pay-per-view angle. So I don't really think it deserved to be on the show, maybe on Raw the next night to kind of keep that tie-in together and keep talking about it. That would have been cool, but not for a pay-per-view. And as far as if I think this deserved the WrestleMania backlash name, I say no. There's only three matches on the show that had any sort of WrestleMania implications. The WWE Championship match with Lashley, McIntyre, and Strowman. Uh, the Raw Women's match with had Ripley, Asuka, and Charlotte. And then The Miz and Damian Priest. They had a little tie together with the tag team match at WrestleMania. And all of the other matches were either brand new feuds or just matches that had nothing to do with what happened at WrestleMania. So how are you going to experience a WrestleMania backlash if nothing really on the show was related to WrestleMania other than a few things? And I understand, like you were saying, the branding of it, because that's really smart to do. But if you're not going to keep it tied in, then they should have just kept it as backlash instead of WrestleMania backlash. Um, yeah, but I think I, they didn't call it a WrestleMania repeat or a WrestleMania, uh, you know, replug. Um, so three important matches, uh, I guess, in some ways from WrestleMania, which had a direct connection to WrestleMania for me. Um, and look, I mean, Cesaro and Seth Rollins, I mean, that was the match that set up Cesaro and Roman Reigns in some ways. I mean, that's when he proved to the company, I think, that he could be a main eventer. 
um, finally. So, yeah, I mean, I think we'll agree to disagree. And I have a lot to say about the zombies. I completely disagree with you, but we'll wait for that later. Yeah, and you, you said three important matches from WrestleMania. So putting zombies in a match made it important. I agree, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, I'm all about the zombies, man. <laughs> Chris Silverwood will make first use of his new responsibilities for selection early next week as he names the England squad for the opening test match assignment of the summer against New Zealand. Silverwood will confirm the squad for the two tests against New Zealand, the first of which at Lords on June 2nd. On and that decision will be made on Tuesday, May 18th. It has not yet been confirmed how many players will be named in the party, but the ECB are keen to avoid a large number of reserves having to live within the confines of a biosecure bubble without playing, as was the case last summer. Even so, it is likely to be a larger squad than the traditional 13-man group. Despite England's IPL players being back in the country and in theory at least available for that first test, there are suggestions that Silverwood could stick to the original plan and include a number of new faces to give them some experience ahead of a busy 12 months. It will be interesting to see if the likes of Joss Butler, Chris Wokes, and Sam Curran are included. The trio all of whom have red ball contracts have been in a 10 day hotel quarantine since they arrived back in England from India. They are set to leave their hotels at midnight on Saturday, May 15th, and would then just have a few days to prepare for the next round of championship matches, which begin next Thursday. But I'm going to start this one. Actually, no, I, I like this question for you to start with you being the cricket expert of the two of us. So is keeping the players from the IPL out the right move or should they continue with the usual suspects to keep them active and ready at all times? Firstly, Rajiv, I've, it's um, a big test for Chris Silverwood. It's, it's a model that I don't think any team has used before where they've literally gotten rid of the selection committee. It's going the English football way, right? When the manager uh, of the club has a say on everything, like, you know, from selections and uh, who plays and strategy and tactics. It's not just about them being in the dugout and directing players, but it's about picking who... who oh, sorry about that. Uh, the dog's just a little ratty this morning. Um, uh, so... And it's it's it, it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. But Australia have always had the coach be part of the selection committee, though they've always had a proper selection committee like um, to to pick players. But the coach has been a part of it, but he's not been in charge of it. So that itself is an interesting model. Um, look, Chris Silverwood is uh, you know before we before I come to your question uh, has proved himself. Uh, Joe Root seems to work really well with Chris Silverwood. We saw that on the tour of uh, India, where they seem to have that right balance, where especially for Test cricket, uh, of course, Trevor Bayliss did an amazing job with England, winning them their first ever 50 over World Cup. Uh, Ollie, can you please leave me alone? <laughs> uh, and well, funnily enough, while we were talking, um, the England squad has been announced. So oh. there you have it. It's, uh, there you go. There are some new names in it, Rajiv. So I, I don't know, by the time this episode comes out, people will know about it. And a lot of the IPL players have been left out, which wow. I'm, I'm not 
too surprised by because England have we saw that on the tour of India as well, right? They have, they've always been, I think, if anything, uh, a few steps ahead of everyone else in terms of uh, there she is. Uh, every everyone else in terms of like how they adapt to uh, uh, to like you know the demands of the modern game in terms of how hectic the scheduling is. They do rest their players. They're never shy of resting their players to. Uh, prolong their careers in terms of maybe you know immediate gains. It's something that not every country uh, around the cricket world agrees with. Um, you see, you saw that like you know a couple of them played one Test match and went back. Johnny Bairstow went from Sri Lanka home and then came back uh, to India to play the last two Tests. So they, they it can look a little funky or wonky as Jim Ross hates people calling it, but. <laughs> Um, but it makes sense in terms of like, would Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad have, would they still be playing if not for England's uh, policy in terms of rotating their bowlers? Who knows? So, um, yeah, the team is out. If uh, you want me to, I can say that the new names are James Bracey. So, of course, you have your regulars, Root and Anderson and Broad and Rory Burns and Zach Crawley. Ben Fokes was so good with uh, yeah. keeping. Craig Overton's come back. I always just like Craig Overton. Overton. And uh, yeah, so Ollie Robinson and uh, James Bracey are the new names of sorts in that that playing 11 while Craig Overton has come back. So a majority of the IPL players have been rested. Jofra Archer and Ben Stokes are, of course, fighting injury. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's it, it's going to stay. This is going to be the England way. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see other countries following suit, really. I... I think they should have kept their usual suspects because, look, if you're not planning on going with the younger players long term, then there's definitely plenty of time to get them in the side. If guys like Butler, Wokes, and Curran want to represent their country, then let them. I mean, we remember, we were talking about Michael Vaughn arguing that a player should want to play for their country. So why would you want to discourage someone that wants to do that? And plus, this is the first test series since March. It might be good. It, well, it would have been good, if, if you ask me, to give them at least one match and get some reps in the test format. As we know, a test match is very different than limited overs, and this would have given them plenty of time to get ready, especially for the Ashes in December. There's and Plus, there's that big series with... Uh, they play in, in India. India, exactly. There we go. <laughs> so you got the Ashes, you've got India... I mean, yeah. there's and there's countless people that aren't tied to England or Australia or India that just love watching India play or they love watching the Ashes. I mean, I myself love the Ashes and I would want all players involved to give us a nail-biting competitive series. And if they would have kept them in, that would have gave them prep as soon as possible with this format to do that. So I would have wanted them to stay in the squad and thought that it would have been good for morale and team continuity. But... Obviously, they went a different route to give them some more rest. And uh, hey, more power to them. More power to them. It's actually, you know, though I disagreed with you earlier, I think I'll have to agree with one point. I have always wanted someone to interview Jofra Archer and ask him about this whole rotation thing. Of course, he keeps breaking down these days with injury. Uh, though I did mention Anderson and Broad and the amount of test cricket they've played and the number of wickets they've taken. But they did that because for the majority of their career, they played pretty much every match. So would Jofra Archer or any current England fast bowler even come close to Anderson or Broad in terms of their numbers uh, towards the end of their careers? Maybe not because they wouldn't have played uh, 
played as much cricket as those guys have or maybe they should have but you i think you hit the nail on the head with the with 10 test matches coming up after these two against new zealand which is pretty much almost a warm up for new zealand right. for the world test championship final uh, so five against india and five against australia the 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 ashes maybe they just uh, holding them back for because they will want anderson and broad fit and firing and hopefully archer as well more for the ashes than uh, for their series against india and, and to your point like a lot of people when they're looking at players and how great were they they're looking at stats and not many people look at well how many matches did they actually play they just look at the final total so like to your point if at the end of the day they haven't played as many matches as like a, a jimmy anderson then obviously the numbers aren't going to look as good so yeah it's 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 a tough it's a tough uh, uh thing to uh, like you know it will always be up for debate i don't think you can have a yeah so it, it works at times it doesn't work at times but yeah who knows we'll we'll see what happens in the summer bangladesh all-rounder shakib al-hasan has set to return at number 3 in the upcoming three match ODI series against Sri Lanka scheduled to be played from May 23rd for those that don't know Shakib was supposedly contacted by bookmakers while playing in 2018 for failing to report those approaches made to him by the bookmakers he was found guilty of breaching the ICC anti corruption code 2.4.4 and was handed a two year ban one year being suspended he is a able to resume international he was able to resume international cricket as of October 29th 2020 Bangladesh team management opted to demote Shakib in his comeback ODI series after the ban against the West Indies to provide experience down the order however the ploy did not pay off as Nazmul Hussain failed to seize the opportunity at the position that paved the way for Soumya Sarkar's return in the following ODI series against New Zealand which Shakib missed Uh the Bangladesh chief selector confirmed the development to Crick Buzz adding that they feel the position suits him best. Shakib was promoted to 3 during the 2019 World Cup and he proved his worth with the batting performance scoring 606 runs with an average of 86.57 that included two centuries and five half centuries at number 3 in ODI Shakib has been very very successful and the team management subsequently decided to push Shakib to Shakib to four against the West Indies which was largely due to the fact that he was returning to international cricket after a long break and they want to bring stability back to the batting order the question is shakib batting at 3 and odi is the right move or with how shaky the bangladesh batting can be at the top is it better to have him in the middle of the order i think shakib batting at 3 is the way to go uh, like i said in the question bangladesh is shaky at best at the top of the order keeping shakib at 3 is going to help anchor the innings and we've seen him do it before many times especially with the world cup the thing that i really love about shakib al hasan is how devastating he can be with both sides of the ball he can go out score a century for you and then turn around and take a five wicket haul so that puts you in elite status and if bangladesh had a better top of the order then i would say to have him come in at maybe 5 maybe 4 uh it seems to me like bangladesh is in a transition period at the moment and you know they haven't been able to get the right squad together it feels like especially for odis and having that experience at 3 is going to help keep the innings together for them and it might just be the best thing for them going forward 
I completely agree with you. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> like, uh, uh, like I could not think of one thing you said which um, I can even debate or cross question because uh, Shakib, well, firstly, what a wonderful cricketer he's been. Yeah, I mean, it was it was terrible when he had to miss a year of cricket, which goes back to our topic on uh, heat streak. When you are a senior cricketer and you know how things work. Even something like not reporting an approach to the ACU or ACSU, you deserve punishment because you know that's the right thing to do. So, well, at least he's back and uh, he's looked a little, of course, at his age, he's looked a little rusty. I think he played a few games in the IPL, didn't look himself uh, because he's a special player. Um, mm-hmm. He's really helped Bangladesh cricket up. I mean, him, Tamim Iqbal, Mushfikir Rahim, and Mushrif Murtaza. I mean, Mushrif Murtaza has finished 20 years of cricket now. I know he's wow. at odds with the BCB. Uh, but, uh, you know, Shakib's done it all. You look at best numbers for all-rounders in all formats. Um, his name just pops up everywhere. And uh, this is despite Bangladesh not playing as much. They do play a lot more cricket than they used to, but still not to the extent that in England or in India or in Australia or even in, in South Africa do. So he's just an extraordinary talent. And uh, he, I, I always thought of him as a top order batsman. I know he used to be down the order at number five, number six, uh, but he's someone who needs that time to settle in as we saw during that 2019 world cup. Right. Um, and he just brings that calmness to the middle uh, with the bat I mean, with the ball, with whatever he does on the cricket field, but especially for that Bangladesh batting lineup, which can, uh, which can be on the edge at times. Uh, I think he he brings that, uh, and even we've seen Mushfiqur Rahim have his moments of madness in the middle. Like you know, he's again a gun cricketer, but um, and a super batsman. But having Shakib just helps them build around him. Um, and he should, I think he should have always been at three. Uh, maybe when he was captain, he felt like there was just too much responsibility batting up the order, bowling sure. 10 overs and captaining the side. Uh, but now that that is not his issue anymore, not, not, not his problem anymore, not his headache anymore, I think he should stick to number three uh, across all formats. I mean, they've tried different players. Shoma Sarkar, very elegant batsman. He's been number three, he's opened, he's... Yeah, they just haven't got that continuity. Maybe Shakib from now till the end of his career can um, help everyone else build around him. This past week, AEW Dynamite featured a segment in which the inner circle sprayed down the pinnacle with champagne. This was reminiscent of the beer truck incident with Stone Cold Steve Austin and the milk truck incident with Kurt Angle. Is wrestling running out of ideas that they have to use rehashed versions of old stories? Or do you think redoing old stories can be good because this is a brand new generation that may not have seen it? I think it's great that they're redoing old storylines. Look, nothing will ever match the original beer truck moment because that was what it was. It was amazing. But the generation of today may not have seen that moment. And even if they have, this is probably really cool for them to have a moment of their own that's similar. I mean, we have to remember the Stone Cold beer truck incident was over 20 years ago now. So it's also similar to a movie being remade or rebooted. We may not be happy with 
the fact that this is being done, but they're doing it to bring a story to the new generation. And there's been plenty of things. Blood and Guts is redoing an old thing. Uh, the match between Cody and Chris Jericho at Full Gear had the judges, which was reminiscent of Sting and Ric Flair at the first Clash of the Champions. So I think it's great that they're bringing all of this old, really great stuff back so that the new generation can see it. And I really can't blame them for trying it. Um. I can. <laughs> I can blame them for uh, trying it. I mean, AEW prides itself in, you know, being ahead of the WWE in terms of storytelling and being more creative in terms of wrestling stories. Um, so to see, yeah, I mean, you took, talk about the beer truck incident or the, the milk truck um, incident with Kurt Angle and Steve Austin. Uh, and if it works as a nostalgia act if they're involved in some way where there is some reference point um, and to kind of borrow an idea from that. Yeah. I mean, the younger audience might not have seen uh, the beer truck one or the milk truck one, but um, back then it came with a sense of shock and awe, especially the beer truck incident where Steve Austin came and drenched everyone. <laughs> so Vince McMahon is trying to swim in the wrestling <laughs> thing. I think that was uh, the evil Vince McMahon at his ultimate best. I think one of the greatest things I've ever seen him do is actually swim in <laughs> inside the ring or try to swim and escape from the ring with all that beer in there. Um, and um, I think I think that if you go looking for it, there are lots of stories where you don't really have to rely on the past unless you are building it up to be a nostalgia show. Uh, the idea can be the same. I think with... Uh, uh, blood and guts it was a borrowed idea but the execution was very different so i mean you can come say that okay they didn't use beer or milk they used champagne but you know the idea and the execution are pretty much the same they aren't too different so yeah i don't know just purely based on because uh, on the fact that aew prides itself on being different being uh, very novel with their ideas and they are uh, but to to an extent, Rajiv, I think it's always going to happen. I mean, you see, uh, especially the more wrestling you watch, like us now, we what, watched over 20 years of wrestling, maybe 25 in uh, my case. Uh, there will You'll always form these connections, right? Because we've seen that happen. And it happens with all facets of life, I guess, except documentaries, I guess, because, you know, people who, some documentaries that I see, I'm like, wow, how did he, even, he or she even think of that? Right, you know, there is no... Uh, but with movies or sport or definitely with wrestling, I think more or less there will be a sense of throwback. Uh, but do we need it? Not if uh, there is no direct nostalgia attached to it. If there was a Kurt Angle or a Steve Austin involved, either like alongside the, or either like, you know, whether they were in the ring or in the truck, then maybe it adds something to it. But otherwise, not really. Maybe they figured Chris Jericho being there is part of the nostalgia, even if he wasn't directly tied to it. Yeah, I, yeah, but it seems a little far-fetched for you. I can see even when you say that. <laughs> Agree to disagree. <laughs> You're getting good at this. 
<laughs> Cricket Australia has contacted Cameron Bancroft seeking new information about the 2018 ball tampering scandal. Speaking to The Guardian over the weekend, Bancroft was asked directly if Australia's bowlers knew about the plan to use sandpaper on the ball during the Cape Town test against South Africa three years ago, and twice he replied that the answer was pretty self-explanatory. Now, Cricket Australia's integrity unit have written to Bancroft during his stint playing county cricket as an overseas player at Durham, offering him the chance to shed fresh light on the incident that led to him receiving a nine-month ban from cricket as well as year-long suspensions for Steve Smith and David Warner. Since Bancroft's interview, a joint statement published on Mitchell Stark's website on Tuesday and addressed to the Australian public, Stark Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood, and Nathan Lyons said they had already answered questions many times on the issues, but felt compelled to go on the record again. And I quote, we pride ourselves on our honesty, so it's been disappointing to see that our integrity has been questioned by some journalists and past players in recent days in regard to the Cape Town test of 2018. We did not know a foreign substance was taken onto the field to alter the condition of the ball until we saw the images on the big screen at Newlands. And to those who, despite the absence of evidence, insist we must have known about the use of a foreign substance simply because we are bowlers, we say this. The umpires during that test match, Nigel Long and Richard Illingworth, both very respected and experienced umpires, inspected the ball after images surfaced on the TV coverage and did not change it because there was no sign of damage. But uh, the first question here is, do you believe that the other bowlers had no knowledge of the ball tampering? And also, do you think that Cameron Bancroft had the right to put his teammates in such a precarious situation? Before I even get to that, Rajiv, my biggest takeaway from that, the statement from the bowlers is one of them, or at least the person who framed that statement, listens to Bruce Pritchard. Because... <laughs> You read down, I think you just mentioned it, rumor and innuendo. <laughs> so, uh, I, 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 because I Googled it, you know, I tweeted about this last evening. I Googled rumor and innuendo to see if it's like a very commonly used uh, phrase. Turns out it's not. The third option Google threw, threw up was um, the Pro Wrestling Tees website with the rumor and innuendo Bruce Pletcher t-shirt there. So, which means that like I said, someone is listening. Some there is a. I think. I, who do you think it could be? I think it's Josh Hazelwood. I don't know why. I grew up in the country. Mm. Maybe, maybe. Mm. that'll be interesting to note someday. I'll have to check on that. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's an albatross which is never gonna leave the Australian uh, Australian cricket next because it's gonna be there forever. After Cape Town, there are gonna there's gonna be newer. Uh, I wouldn't say evidence, but people will come out and speak once the lead characters in that story, the Warners and the Smiths retire and they write their own books. David Warner's agent has already come out and said, uh, wait for the real story. Once he retires and writes his book, it'll be there. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure it will like, you know, and then this will always keep coming back up to the surface and who knew who didn't know. Uh, well, look, the bowlers have defended themselves and there have been a lot of guys like Stuart Broad and um, others, Andrew Flintoff, a lot of English cricketers, ex and current. Of course, it's an Ashes year. So this is all just, again, it's all about storyline. You know, the Ashes is like the WrestleMania of cricket. 
So, you know, this is the, the road to WrestleMania has started. And one thing I've learned from covering Australian cricket in the last few years is that the Ashes is just something very different, Rajiv. It really does feel like a WrestleMania because six, eight, nine months out, or how WrestleMania used to be in the past, they start developing storylines. And now this is just, and you know, where was Cameron Bancroft interviewed? Over in England. Right. You know? And you see that interview, the, the, the interviewer who's one of the greatest ever in the field, presses him on the issue. Like, no, did the bowlers know? He gives his answer once, but then he goes back to that question. Like, no, but you are like, you know, you're not giving a clear enough answer. Um, and where I think Cameron Bancroft, uh, I mean, he has every right to speak out. He was suspended for uh, a period of time. And, you know, unlike Steve Smith and David Warner, his test career, he, he has struggled. He did get his spot back for the Ashes two years ago. Didn't make too many runs and that's it. Like, will he ever come back? I don't know. He was in the Sheffield Shield uh, 11s, got a lot of runs last year for Western Australia. But, you know, uh, and he is entitled to go out and speak. Where he let himself down was, you know, the ambiguity. Either you speak out or you say nothing. By, you know, by almost hinting at the fact that the bowlers knew, he did not give himself an out to, you know, retract a statement or make anything about it. I mean, he's come on record now today and said that, no, he stole Cricket Australia. I have now no, no new information. He's apparently reached out to the bowlers. But, you know, has he burned the bridge? In my opinion, he has by being ambiguous. Like, you know, he's also his agent has said that he was distressed by the line of questioning. But you can't defend that. Like, you know, and did the bowlers know? Like Stuart Broad and Andrew Flintoff have said and many others have said, how could they not have known? I mean, they are the ones using the ball for our listeners, uh, the non-cricketing listeners. Uh, what ball tampering is, is basically uh, illegally trying to tamper with the condition of the ball so that it does things it shouldn't. It, sh- it swings and it seems. And uh, one day we'll get into reverse swing. It's a topic that might take us 16 hours to complete, but <laughs> maybe we'll uh, have a special guest for that. Uh, maybe we'll get a former fast bowlers indulged in a lot of ball tampering, like every other fast bowler, every cricketer has over the years. Um, so it's it altered, they illegally altered the condition of the ball. Um, and who are they doing it for? For the bowlers' sake. So logically thinking, you would think the bowlers would know. But in that episode, the ball wasn't changed because the ball didn't do anything. Like So technically, Cameron Bancroft didn't do a good enough job on the ball to you know make it do things that the Australians wanted uh, it to do. David Warner, as the investigation would find out. Uh, or what David Warner wanted as vice-captain. So, it, But you look, it's, it's going to rear his ugly head over and over again, and especially over the next six months, because it's the ashes. Stuart Broad has said the Bami Army, the English traveling crew of English fans, if they are allowed into the stadiums in Australia, will sing songs about it, uh, or like they did in Edge Bastion. Oh God, I, I still have nightmares of uh, listening to the Bami Army singing. <laughs> uh, same old Aussies always cheating. Oh God, it gives me the shudders, but. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's like I said, the ashes in WrestleMania. The build-up has begun. Uh, stay tuned. You're going to hear a lot more about it in the next few months. I do believe the other bowlers, when they say that they didn't know about the ball tampering issue, as they said in their statement, even the umpires couldn't tell just by looking at the ball. It required video evidence and images of the sandpaper in Bancroft's hand and pocket for them to see. 
And part of the game of cricket is using the same ball over and over and over again, which can be changed, of course, after 80 overs to get a new ball into the test format. But it may have appeared to the umpires and even the bowlers themselves that this was just normal wear and tear of the ball and they didn't think anything of it. Now, as far as Cameron Bancroft is concerned, I'm really disappointed in how he answered his question. Uh, Like you said, it was very vague and you never want to put your teammates in a position without having either actual knowledge of them knowing or just throwing something out there for quote unquote clickbait. If you actually know that they know what's going on, then just come out and say it. Don't give this wishy-washy, it's pretty self-explanatory answer. If they all did know, then absolutely shame on them. I don't condone cheating in any way, but there was an investigation done, as you said, and there did not seem to be any evidence that any other other teammates knew about the situation. So to put them in this position is, to me, disgraceful. He's trying to fade the heat, as it is said in the wrestling world, and it's going to be hard for him to get his teammates on his side again after all this. Yeah, or even face up to them. (laughs) Yeah. Because the Australian bowlers, they are all from New South Wales. So it'll be interesting to see the next uh, Western Australia v New South Wales Sheffield Shield match. Uh, It will happen before the international calendar commences next summer. So you would expect all four of them would... uh, Whether they play in all the other matches or not together, I expect them to play uh, in the one against WA. Chris Jericho will reportedly be out of action for four to six weeks. As noted on Thursday, it was revealed that Jericho suffered a legitimate left elbow injury during his fall from the Blood and Guts cage on the May 5th AEW Dynamite show. This is why Chris Jericho wore the brace on his arm during the next week's Dynamite segment with the Inner Circle and the Pinnacle. In an update, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter reports that Jericho suffered a dislocated elbow in the fall off the cage. The Pinnacle is set to face the Inner Circle in a stadium stampede match at the AEW Double or Nothing pay-per-view on Sunday, May 30th here in the United States, and this week's Dynamite indicated that Jericho will be working that match. However, the Observer added that Jericho is going to be out for four to six weeks, and there is no word yet on how Jericho will work the stadium stampede match with the elbow injury. Is this a big blow for AEW, or do you think this could lead into Jericho slowing down his in-ring work and be more of a manager or coach? I think... It's definitely a big blow for AEW as they have this, this is one of their big stories with the pinnacle and the inner circle going on. But I don't think Jericho is done wrestling. He does, if in my opinion, need to slow down because he's, he has nothing left to prove really to anyone, maybe to himself, but definitely not to the fans or to the public. I think he should transition to being more of a mouthpiece for the inner circle and only wrestle once in a great while in like the really, really big matches. He is approaching that portion of his career where he's starting to overexpose himself and it's showing that he's losing a step and he's slowing down in the ring. Some would even argue that he's been at that stage for a while now. So if he becomes a part-time performer and limits the amount of big bumps that he takes, he could easily wrestle for another five years. But if he keeps himself going at the rate that he's going now, then he does need to call it a day soon. Now for the stadium stampede match, I'm pretty sure they're going to do like last year and tape a majority of it beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I think they'll have some of it 
live at the show, but they're definitely not going to do the whole thing live. So he'll be able to get away with it. And especially because this match is kind of a no holds barred match, they can use that arm brace in the match. So there's ways for him to get around it for this particular match, but he definitely, to me, needs to start slowing down and be more of a part-time performer. Is there a greater performer than Chris Jericho? Or has there been a greater performer than him in our lifetime? I don't think so. I mean, yes, Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and even Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, you know, John Cena to an extent. These are the names you talk about when you talk of greats. But nobody's adapted and evolved as many times as much as Chris Jericho. And he's been good at everything. I mean... You know, I've been watching his uh, Broken Skull Sessions, the interview, interviews run by Steve Austin. How good an interviewer is Stone Cold Steve Austin? Oh, he's amazing. I used to watch the interviews that JBL used to do. I don't remember the name name of his show. And I thought those were pretty good. But Steve Austin is brilliant. Like, just the way he guides the interview and he asks pertinent questions. He doesn't come with a set, you know, questionnaire of sorts. He's really good. I'm... I've been very impressed by him and Chris Jericho. Like I said, he's, I think he is the greatest wrestler of all time in my book, greatest performer of all time, maybe not the greatest wrestler, um, but everyone can relate with him. I mean, he got a pen over just someone clicking the pen. I know people talk about Ric Flair, like, you know, his promos and like, you know, he could uh, make anything work. But I don't know whether Ric Flair ever made like a, the click of a pen work. And like the way he would hold the pen up, Chris Jericho, when during the list of Jericho times, and the whole crowd would wait with bated breath just for him to just click the pen. Like yeah, he he's he's just a great performer. And you know, he in the broken skull sessions, he talks about how he went away and worked on his acting, and which I really um appreciate people who work at getting better. Uh, uh, even if they are at the top of the game. And that's why he's he's he stayed relevant for so long and he continues to stay relevant. And one more thing that came across, and one thing I, you've always seen, Chris Jericho, is like we speak about uh, fast bowlers a lot in cricket, especially we speak about, oh, he knows, his, he or she knows their body really well. Like, you know, Zahir Khan, the former India fast bowler, they would always say, he knew his body really well. Jimmy Anderson is another great. Like that's that gives you longevity if you know your body really well. And I think Chris Jericho not only knows his body really well, I think he's very aware of his body of work. Um, and I think he's been a very good judge of it historically. And I think he will take the right call. I will not be surprised if he does what you just said, Raji, which is slow down to the extent he continues to work as a wrestler for the next five or six years, but can, but just does out-and-out wrestling matches uh, uh, more intermittently than he is currently. And definitely, he will be at the stadium stampede match. He'll, he, I, I don't see it happening without him. He's still, in many ways, Jim Ross says this a long time, he is the MVP of AEW. Uh, not MVP, the wrestler, but the most valuable player. Like, you know, show after show. Um, and in, in the Broken Skull sessions, he speaks about how he thought the initial days of the AEW, it was his job to shoulder the responsibility. But I think he still carries the load and he does it really, really well. Uh, so he's a smart man. He's a really smart man. I'm sure he'll take the right call with regards to his own body and his career. Uh, but yeah, I don't want to see Chris Jericho ever leave wrestling because you always... 
are intrigued. You always want to know what he's going to do next. And when he does hang up his wrestling boots and turns to whatever he's going to do, the next commentary or managing, uh, he'll just be as bloody good at it as he has been with everything else he has uh, in wrestling. And now it's time for a very special edition of Fact or Fiction. This week, we are not alone. We have on with us this week a visionary of professional wrestling. He was recently inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame as part of the 2021 class. You can listen to his podcast 83 weeks every Monday, as well as his brand new radio show, For the Heat, which airs Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern time at ForTheHeat.com. He is the man whose hair rivals buttocks. It is Eric Bischoff. How are you doing, Eric? I, I'm doing great, Rajiv, but but it's got me hands down. There's no there's no competing here. <laughs> there's just admiration. I'm jealous of both of you. As you both can see, our, our listeners can't see, I'm a bald man and I really appreciate good hair. So I'm looking at both of you right now, the most jealous guy in the world. <laughs> oh, well. well. As Eric always says, context is king, Rajiv. Yeah, well, hey, here's the good. Well, here, here's the thing, Rajiv. I can't grow a good-looking beard. Oh, <laughs> my beard gets real thick, like around my mouth and my chin, and, and real thick, and it grows real fast. And this stuff all grows scraggly, so I just look like some kind of desperate human being walking around with that beard. So <laughs> I may have the hair, but you have the beard. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well. Thank you again, Eric, for agreeing to be on with us. This is such a treat for not just us, but for our listeners. Uh, we are combining cricket and wrestling, and we have our first personality on from the wrestling world. And who better to start off with than Eric Bischoff, right, Budit? Well, I know. I mean, Eric, I have to tell you this. I've been using so much. So I'm a journalist. I'm a legitimate journalist, <clears throat> like an actual journalist, not uh... <laughs> let me just not put it out. A cosplay journal journalist? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I don't play the gimmick. I actually am uh, the the character. Uh, so I've been using your wisdom, like, you know, while I like speak to young journalists about uh, what they should be looking for. Context is king is a line I use a lot. Uh, because a lot of it is lost these days uh, because of social media and just like pressures of clickbait and all that. Uh, and, you know, it's at the end of the day, journalism is storytelling. So I use a lot of uh, things that you say to try to explain it to them, use ref wrestling references as well. So thank you for that. And um, yeah, who better than Eric Bischoff to uh, enlighten us on this show? Yeah, but guys, I got to ask you, though, are you like the only podcast on the entire planet that is combining cricket and wrestling. Yes, we are. That is something All that right. I researched before the, uh, we <laughs> hit the airwaves, and I was like, oh, man, we got something here. <laughs> you found your niche. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you think about it. You know, cricket is so big in India. Wrestling is big in India. Uh, and cricket's, you know, big all over the world, but specifically in India. So, I don't know. Maybe you guys are on to something. I like to think we are. And have you ever watched a cricket match yourself, Eric? Not an entire match. You know, I've watched it when I've been in Australia, um, for sure. But just passively, you know, I'm interested. You know, it's a unique sport. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like baseball, but not. Mm. You know, it's, I mean, it, I don't know. It's a very cool, it's very fun to watch for someone who knows nothing about it. Um, and what was the name of that movie where 
a young cricket player from India came over. It was a true story and made a U.S. Uh, a national, uh, uh, MLB team. I Major think uh, you're team. talking million dollar arm. Is that the movie? <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was based on a true story. So I've always been interested, but I don't know anything about the game. Uh, Eric, you know, the guy who was featured in million dollar arm, that same kid that you're talking about. Sure. He's one of the guys who accompanied Jinder Mahal um, to the ring. He's one of the big guys. He's, uh, uh, I think he goes by the gimmick name of Veer. So he's now turned to professional wrestling. And I was just talking to Rajiv earlier. Like, has there ever been someone who's had a movie made about them, who's then gotten into a wrestling ring? Like, I really hope they make good use of him because he's, he's, he's a real life story. I hope you're right, because that's the kind of backstory that you can't make up. You can't right. create that and make it as good as it really is in real life. So, man, what a journey that could be. What a what a fun story it would be to tell for his career. Yeah, absolutely. Riku Singh goes from cricket to baseball to wrestling. What what a life. So, Eric, thank you again for coming on. The reason we have you on today is to join us for this awesome segment called Fact or Fiction. Normally, Budit and I go back and forth. I'll, I make a statement, and then we say whether we think it's fact or fiction, and then we present arguments as, as to why we feel that is. But I think this week, since we have you, I'm just going to kind of drive this thing, and I'm going to let you and Budit go back and forth on this. How does that sound to you? Uh, I'm in. You can be the ref You can be the Nick Patrick. All right, I, I better start. Uh, I better uh, work on my fast count then. So, uh, <laughs> so let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, Eric, before I give this first statement, did you have the chance to watch WrestleMania Backlash? No. Did you hear about the zombie lumberjacks that were part of the lumberjack match? I did. <laughs> okay, so let's get into our first statement here. The cross-promotion of the film Army of the Dead and WrestleMania Backlash was actually a good thing for WWE, even despite the zombie lumberjacks. But let's start with you on that one. Oh, okay. Uh, I was expecting to take second strike. Uh, I think, uh, you know what? I think it's, 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 it's a fact. I think it's a good thing. Uh, and I had to compete with the eight-year-old me who discovered wrestling watching it on TV back in India. Uh, and the first match I ever saw was Undertaker and Papa Shango. Uh, and, and it had me hooked. I mean, two of the most obnoxious, or not obnoxious, out there characters you could imagine, right? Uh, and that's what hooked me onto, onto wrestling. I know these were zombies from a movie, uh, uh, you know, ra randomly entering the wrestling ring. And 36-year-old Bharat felt, you know, I need to switch off the TV right now. But then I was like, well, wait, uh, it was like, this is, this is what got me to, to the dance in many ways. Uh, and, you know, movie promotion and sport, I, I, it's always happened, at least with cricket, uh, back in the 80s, when they used to have uh, all these matches played in the UAE, which later on turned out to be a match fixing hub. But anyway, so back then, they used to have all these Bollywood movie promotions at written stories about how uh, actors would walk into the commentary box and say, you see that film poster there? Can you just mention my name on air? That's how it started. And now IP, the IPL, the Indian Premier League, which is the sixth most, uh, sixth richest league, uh, sporting league in the world. What is it? It is a blend of, you know, cinema, glamour and, and, and sport. Um, and uh, just a little story about the IPL. Uh, 
the first ever T20 international. Sorry, Eric, I'm getting into the weeds here with cricket. Love it. <laughs> uh, you know, first ever international they had um, in India. Uh, at this point, Eric, the the two most popular Indian cricketers were rumored to be dating this really famous Bollywood actress. So what Lalit Modi, who I think is the Eric Bischoff of cricket, uh, uh, what he did was he he got the broadcasters to do one thing. He said, every time you show cricketer A, immediately the next thing on screen should be the actress who was sitting in the stands. And then, you know, and then uh, the camera should pan onto uh, uh, cricketer B. So almost create this drama on the sidelines of this real cricket match uh, without really promoting anything. And so for me, I think eight-year-old me, 36-year-old me, uh, and someone who has understood how sport and how you know TV can be used for promoting cross brands, if that makes sense, um, I got it. And I think <laughs> as ridiculous as it looked, it worked for me. I'm not going to disagree, but I'm going to add another perspective, I think. I'm, we're going to say almost the exact same thing, but from a little different angle. Here's what I was thinking about today, because I knew someone was going to ask me this question eventually. <laughs> but the target demo for WWE is assumedly 18 to 49-year-old males, because that's where the advertising revenue is. But... Wrestling is a generational product. People watch wrestling throughout their lives for the exact same reason that I just explained. You grow up, you get introduced as a young kid. It stays with you through your teens. You may lose it for a little while in high school because you're busy chasing girls and doing other things and going to college. But before you know it, you and your buddies are back on Monday nights watching wrestling again until you get married and then you have a kid and then you introduce your kid to wrestling and the whole thing starts all over again. Now, if the target demo for WWE is 18 to 49, you've got to be planning ahead five years ahead, 10 years ahead to not only satisfy the 18 to four, 18 to 49 year old, year old audience that you have at this very second, this moment, but also that audience that is growing into that demographic so that they'll be there when the current 18 to 49 is now a 54 year old and up that nobody cares about. You see what I mean? So you, you're cycling them through. And I think that if, and this is just to kind of make my example simple to understand. Um, if 10 people who saw the pay-per-view Maybe they're my age. Maybe they're younger, 45-year-olds, 35-year-olds. If 10 of the 10 35-year-olds today said, I'm never going to watch wrestling again and meant it. But two new viewers who were 16 or 14 or 12 or 10, if I gained two of those and I lost 10 of those, I'll give up 10 of those for two of those all day long. Because that's the value and that's the future. So you have to balance these types of things out. I'm sure some people are like gagging and everybody likes to go on social media and make fun of things because that's what wrestling fans do because it makes them feel smarter than they really are. But from a business perspective, I understand it. And I think it'll probably work in the, in the long run. 
Well said, Eric. Our next statement, during the 90s was the best time to be a wrestling fan. Eric Bischoff, is that a fact or fiction? I think it's all relative. You know, to to those of us who were, well, I'm going to take myself out of the equation, but um, for those people who were 18, 21, 35, you know, early 40s, that have been growing up watching, you know, the WWE kind of animated character, cartoony version of wrestling. And now there was this new kind of edgy adult version of the product they used to, you know, that they grew up with. Like we just got them talking about. If you're one of those people, I think absolutely. It, it had to be because it was such an exciting time and wrestling expanded so much. But if you were, 55 years old or 60 years old, like I am now, and you saw what was happening on Nitro with NWO, you wouldn't get it. You would hate it. You would sound like Jim Cornette. You know, <laughs> oh, it's not as good as it was back in 1984 when I was doing it. You know, you, you become one of those bitter old people that, you know, it's not the same. Sports is not the same. Nothing's the same. Well, of course, nothing's the same. But it, it just, I think it depends on your age group and what you were experienced, what you exposed, what you were exposed to. Uh, yeah, I, I cannot disagree at all with uh, Eric. That is, it is relative. I think it also, uh, the, I'll put it this way, uh, Rajiv, uh, the platform that introduced me to skimpily clad women uh, was wrestling. And, and you, uh, you have to put that into context like everything else in life. I grew up in India, unlike you guys, where, uh, you know, it was a very conservative society. Even on TV, everything was censored. Uh, movies were censored. The first time I saw breasts on television was Conan the Barbarian, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And it, it, uh, I, I don't know why I was allowed to stay awake that late. Uh, uh, and, I, and I was like, wow. Is that what they look like? And like, you know, that seriously was my uh, <laughs> first time. Uh, you, you, because you know how Indian society is, you're protected. Everything is a taboo. Um, and then, you know, the, the attitude era kind of began. Uh, and you saw, you know, women, Sable was like this mega star in India. Because, you know, everybody everybody wanted to tune into wrestling, even adults like who, who did not understand wrestling because that was the only chance for you to see, uh, uh, you know. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to skirt around the issue for some reason. <laughs> uh, and, and then uh, WCW is interesting for me uh, because my brother and I discovered it one random evening on TNT. Uh, and this is back when uh, Eric, we used to get Nitro three or four weeks after it had aired in uh, the US. So we were way behind, but there was no real internet in India. So we couldn't really go and read up on what was happening. Uh, and it used to, uh, so we used to have Cartoon Network from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. And then 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. was TNT. The same channel would just blend into TNT. Uh, and one day, I think we were watching some cartoons, my brother and I, just like, uh, like, you know, the TNT, it was a Saturday and we used to get nitros on Saturday. So those people in the meeting room with you, Eric, who you asked, which night does nitro air on? Uh, and none of them could answer it. Uh, maybe they were watching it in India. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. 
<laughs> I so, doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then we were like, wow, like, you know, this is, this is around the time that rock music and grunge music was entering India. So everything was like, you know, slightly different. Uh, people were gravitating towards their hair and, uh, you know, people were becoming rebellious. And then what really uh, attracted our attention was the dull lighting for Nitro as compared to the bright lights of uh, WWF or WWF Raw. We were like, wow, this is like, you know, we felt a little naughty watching it at like, you know, and it was also aired post 9 p.m. And uh, I was a huge Razor Ramon fan. So when I saw Scott Hall being Scott Hall, but calling himself Scott Hall and acting like normal, like he wasn't playing a character, we were hooked and it it really changed we never watched wwf again i mean we only went for like you know when someone someone in school said oh you know sable showed it all this week I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> i would go and watch the highlights or like you know get a watch a replay somewhere uh, but otherwise it was all wcw because it was so real and for us um, and it's funny wrestling came to india before friends did so our real exposure to america uh, for my generation was wrestling. We learned about America by watching wrestling. I'm not kidding. Like, you know, about wow. the geography there, the culture there. Um, you know, I, we didn't expect everyone to be NWO, but you know what I mean? Like it was, um, the realism really attracted us more than anything else. Um, and I think the nineties were uh, by far, by far uh, the best era of wrestling. Uh, because like I said, it's always relative. I'm sure when Eric was growing up, uh, for him, it would be his like Nick Bockwinkel and that era he always talks about on 83 weeks. Uh, yeah, it, it's always like you get, uh, you kind of, you know, gravitate towards what attracted you to something the first time, whether it's a woman or whether it's wrestling. Um, whether and, it's yeah. whether it's Sable's breasts or <laughs> professional wrestling. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like there are so many words that came into the Indian vocabulary thanks to wrestling. We did not know what a bloody thong was before, like, you know, we saw, I think China exposed a thong once, you know, like, oh, underwear. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was just crazy. Like, you know, so, uh, yeah, for me, Rajiv, it, 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 it is the ultimate fact. Well, right, this has been really fun listening to your journey into depravity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, Eric. Oh my God. Like, yeah, when, um, when the internet really opened up in India, it, it, it was a big thing. And I, <laughs> I, I remember like, you know, ours was the one of the first houses to get internet and all my uh, friends would come and then we were discovering porn, right? But a proper Hindu household. So there were pictures of the 185,000 gods all over, all over the living room. So you know what I would do? I would take tissue papers and cover all their faces because I didn't want to feel guilty watching porn with all the Indian gods watching me watch porn. <laughs> so it, it, it oh, was very, very interesting. To... <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> All right. Our next statement. Rating wars are actually created by fans and dirt sheets, not the companies that are involved. And I th let's start with Eric again on this one. I'm really interested on your take for this. Uh, I mean, I think I, it's true. It's true. And look, when WCW and, and, and WWE were actually going head-to-head, -head, our A-show against their A-show, head-to-head on Monday night, I mean, that was a real ratings war where the companies were actually 
you know, in my case, trying to take market share in WWE's case for a long time, trying to defend market share until that reversed itself. And then WWE was trying to take my audience and I was trying to hold on to my audience. That was a real, you know, company driven, you know, battle. I, th- I think what we're seeing today is cosplay. I think it's people trying to pretend it's like the Monday night wars when it's really not, it's not AEW's a show against WWE's a show, whether that be SmackDown or, or raw, it's not that. Um, but people want it to be so badly that they start treating it as if, as if it is, you know, it's make believe. That's why I call it cosplay. It's just dressing up and pretending you're in a, in a ratings war and talking if you're a journalist, if you're a wannabe journalist in the wrestling world, not a legitimate journalist. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> like my partner here, but a, a cosplay journalist, like so many of the dirt sheet reporters are not all of them, but many of them, you know, important ratings, but it's really not. It's just a way for them to create content, clickbait, get people talking and debating. And well, the reason those ratings are down is because of whatever I think, you know, well, the reason those ratings are up are because of whatever I think, you know, and none of it is true, but it feels like it's a real war. So let's play. Yeah. And, you know, before I start, I, I just wanted to thank Eric for like, you know, clear clarifying the fact that a lot of them are not real journalists, because at times you just hear, you know, when Conrad reads out these things. And uh, um, even when I read about it online, about them, like, you know, it, them coming across as journalistic reports, I'm like, wow, I give my, like, you know, my life to finding facts and, you know, seeking the story from the other side. These are just people writing opinion, which unfortunately has seeped into a lot of journalism, like I said earlier, and uh, it's it's very difficult to get people out of that habit. Uh, and I've always wanted to file a gimmick infringement case against Dave Meltzer for, you know, pretending to be a journalist. <laughs> Eric, you can help me out with that. <laughs> so, uh, and, and yeah, it's true. It's so true that, um, it, it, you know, I think WWE, like Conrad, says beautifully, uh, you think Cola, you think Pepsi, you think wrestling, you think WWE. And they, they have, and it's kind of unfair to compare AEW and WWE and even to say that they're in a war, right, Eric? I mean, because they, they, they've been around for three years. You're competing with a company, with a public listed company, this uh, mega, mega company, which has been around for 30 years. They are the brand. Maybe 20 years from now, who knows? Maybe there will be a war. And it's interesting, though, this whole fight for relevance with dirt sheet writers, but it, it does exist in journalism. I found it out um, two years ago when I was in England covering the Ashes, Eric, which is Australia versus England, most historic, uh, uh, long rivalry in cricket. Um, uh, one day I'll tell you the whole story about the Ashes. It's basically when, uh, oh, yeah, why, why wait? Uh, so, like, you know, it's, I'll just quickly tell you what it is. So, basically, in 1882, England... Um, lost to Australia for the first time. And they said that uh, there was a obituary carried in the local newspaper which said today English cricket is dead and its ashes were buried or carried off in the uh, into the sunset or something. So they burnt one of the bales, which uh, is kept on top of the stumps. And ever since they played for the ashes, it's in a little urn. So when I was there cov- covering that series, uh, uh, the English journalists would uh, have all these really clickbaity headlines 
and uh, and most of them are my friends and one day i said that i was there as an australian journalist i said why are you guys like you know you guys have been doing this for 20 25 years why are you going for these clickbaity headlines and they're like look the football season in the uk uh, lasts for 9 months so we as cricket writers are always fighting for relevance against football and football or soccer is so much bigger than cricket in in england so we have to come up with things like that so that our stories get like you know decent placement in the newspaper and uh, we stay relevant which is what i think dirt sheet writers and people like melzer do like right eric i mean how, how how do they stay relevant if they don't create this uh, for war and pretend like you know wrestling is like you know back to the 90s there is this new eric bischoff is called tony khan or whatever right it, it's just uh, I think it's it's always going to be there till the time there are dirt sheets and there are people who don't do actual journalism in wrestling. No, it, it look it's going to be around for a long time, and obviously, you know, I wonder what it's like inside of Dave Meltzer's head in real life when you know for so many years, and you know, to his credit, um, I, I think what he does is a joke, but he's worked really hard at that joke for a long time. and financially he's been very successful telling those jokes for a long time and that's because he started in I think 1987 and for a long time you know before anybody else was competing with him before the internet became a thing and god now there's this thing called podcasting where people like me can <laughs> crawl out of their graves and start telling the truth about things you know and make Dave Meltzer and not just Dave but others look like complete morons and prove how incorrect they were and prove how they were just making things up and not just me but Bruce Pritchard and Tony Giovanni anybody else that's out there there are a lot of people that can call bullshit and now all of a sudden Dave's got to defend things that he said 10 years ago 15 years ago 4 years ago 3 years ago where he never had to defend it before and so i think unless Dave evolves you know and certain certain of the um of the newsletter publishers that I have respect for Wade Keller's one um they've evolved Wade Keller used to be as bad as Dave Meltzer but several years ago I think he woke up and went okay you know I've got to evolve I've got to become better at what I do and treat my business more professionally if I want people to view it more professionally and now I'm a fan of his I'll read him you know I I I like what he does when he has when wade has an opinion he'll tell you that it's an opinion and allow you to either read it or not read it what melzer does is present his opinions as facts there and i don't need you to i don't need to tell you but i yes this is your business but therein lies the heat with me mm. you know i i don't care what any everybody should i love challenge i love hearing other people's opinions i love it It's one of the reasons I do this kind of thing as often as I do because I actually really do enjoy doing it. I'm not just saying I enjoy it to be nice. I actually have fun. And I love it because sometimes people say things like, you know, we've had you know, plenty of conversation here tonight that made me think a little differently. Not that we've disagreed about anything here, but I love hearing other people's opinions. What I don't love hearing is somebody telling me their opinion is a fact. At yeah. that point the hair in my neck the back of my neck stands up my blood pressure goes up and my left hand starts twitching just a little bit like it did back when <laughs> i used to have more fun than i do now 
Yeah, no, no, absolutely right. And it, 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 it's so right. I mean, it, and it's not that difficult going and looking for facts in wrestling these days. The numbers are out there. You can actually speak to people like actual journalists do. You can develop real sources rather than just, as you call them, depend on stooges and, you know, just print whatever uh, is printed. That doesn't make you a journalist, right? The whole having a filter um, and using it for all the information that comes your way is what makes you a journalist and adding relevance and context, like you say. Well, this, you know, this show is not going to be very controversial because so far we're agreeing with each other. I know. I know. <laughs> I have a sneaky suspicion. You both might agree on this one too, but let's see. So our last statement for fact or fiction, professional wrestling should be viewed as a television show and not a sport, but it will have you start. Is that fact or fiction? Um, again, it's an, <laughs> it's, it's an ultimate fact uh, because I think it's not, uh, yeah, I mean, a, it's, yeah, of course you can't w- watch it or even perceive it as, as a real sport. Uh, even though, I mean, the athleticism and uh, just the skills that you need to uh, possess to be a good wrestler, as we've heard Eric talk about so much uh, over the last few years, uh, is incredible. Maybe like it, uh, it, it, there are some professional sports persons out there who will never be able to match wrestlers in terms of anything, maybe stamina, lung capacity, you name it. Uh, but it, it, it can never be a sport. But I think it's both at the same time, Raji, what I've come to realize is actual professional sport has now become a TV product. I mean, you know, we, I have this argument with so many other journalists who want to believe in this whole idea of utopia where sport will always remain pure, where, you know, in cricket, the, all, the biggest debate is why should it be played by so few countries? It should be, it should be this global sport. Yeah, but if TV doesn't pay money, I mean, if the broadcasters think there's no money in it, there's no point running it. So you see so many sports, it's not just cricket. Um, whether it's field hockey or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, whether it's soccer, everything evolves to fit into the TV TV market. And that's what I, I, I've realized. You know, I also used to sit on the other side of the fence and think, no, 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 no. Like, you know, why is there so much money coming in uh, to, to sport? It's not good. It kind of like, you know, takes away from the sanctity of sport. But the reality is without that money, cricket doesn't go, sport doesn't get played. I don't have a job. I don't get to travel to all these wonderful countries or someone else's uh, pay uh, and, you know, sip a pina colada in the Caribbean. I would have never gotten to do that if, you know, sport hadn't grown where, uh, to the extent where a lot of broadcast money came in. Uh, and, you know, and that was one of the main reasons I, I posted that question for Eric in his last Ask Eric. It was about, um, you know, and I would love to hear him talk about it. Um, you're not going to get here as argue, Rajiv. I think we just are on the same page, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. <laughs> so, you know, well, you know, and you, you guys, are, you guys are living proof. I say this all the time that, you know, people that listen to 83 weeks, people that are, you know, family members over to have free shows are the most enlightened wrestling fans anywhere in the world. And both of you are living, walking, talking proof. So of course, as enlightened as you are, it's going to be impossible for us to find much to disagree on because we're operating at the same level. It's a little, you know, it's a little lonely up here, isn't it, guys? I mean, sometimes bit. hard. 
but we've always got each other. (laughs) (laughs) We certainly do, uh, seriously. Uh, And and, and yeah, and like Eric, it's true, right? That's, like I said, it it has become a broadcast deal product. I mean, wrestling depends on broadcast deals. Without it, it's like, you know, you can talk about all the great storylines and, uh, you know, we should have more promos and all that. But, you know, the broadcasters are paying for whatever. Um, No, it, 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 it is. It, it, it will always be. You know, you know, with professional wrestling, you know, since the 50s, 1950s, um, professional wrestling has always been driven by television. It's just different now than it was, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s, even into the 70s, into the 80s. You know, you get you oftentimes, WWE did this. I know I did this when I worked for Virginia. You would give the television, you would give your, you know, one hour wrestling show to a local television market. You wouldn't get any, you wouldn't get paid for it. Nobody would pay money for it. If you're lucky, if you give it to them for free, they may give you a couple commercials in there so you can promote your live event. Mm-hmm. So television was always used to promote a live event because the, the live events were the revenue that a wrestling promotion could actually receive because they weren't getting anything from television. Now, fast forward, it's, you know, 2019 um, when SmackDown and and USA both did their deals with um, WWE, or excuse me, when WWE did their deals with USA and Fox, now you're looking at billions of dollars from television that actually replaced the revenue from live events because of COVID. WWE is making more money without touring than they ever did touring. And they were a touring company that has now turned into a television company. Brad's point. And the other thing to think about is that the nature of the product, it's character driven. It's storyline driven. And unlike a story in sports that you have to dig for and you have to find and you have to help maybe make a little more exciting than it really was with, you know, your artful treatment of said story. um, That's a challenge. Whereas in professional wrestling, it's just a matter of how creative you can be and how talented you are. You can make up the stories. You don't need to really dig and find them as you do in sports. So since the nature of professional wrestling is so over the top in terms of it being, you could, if you try to convince people it was a real sport, you'd be just basically looking right at them and calling them stupid. I mean, you can't watch today's, you know, presentation and think that for a minute it's a real sport, but it's very dramatic. It's very dynamic. It's stimulating to watch. It's exciting. I mean, it's so athletic. It's so crazy. And you can have great story. And as such, it will always be a dramatic television experience and not a sports experience. I call it the greatest form of theater, Eric. I really think it, it is. The form of theater. Yeah. It truly is. Eric, do you think that part of why wrestling fans get so polarizing with their opinion on what they're seeing is because they're viewing it as a sport as opposed to a television product? No, I, I think... You know, when you say, do you think wrestling fans are so polarized and they, you know, they get vocal, I'll add a few words in there and, you know, they go on the internet, you know, they're screaming about stuff or, you know, excited about stuff. That's the nature of a percentage of a wrestling fan, just like it's the nature of a small percentage of cricket fans or a small percentage of 
NFL fans. You know, ESPN exists because sports fans just want to sit around and bitch about shit and listen to other people bitch about shit. (laughs) 90% of what you see on ESPN is not sports. It's people talking about sports. Um, It's just the nature of fandom, I think. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You just have to recognize it for what it is. It doesn't represent 80% of the viewing audience or 90% of the viewing audience. It represents a small percentage of super, super obsessive fans. God bless them, by the way, not being critical, but they're so passionate about the product that they, they project themselves into the internet, and their feelings about things because they're so loyal to the product. Absolutely. And, and just to add, Rajiv, I think with social media, it's changed everything where people have a platform and, you know, if you are a fan who wants to be heard on social media, you have to be either white or black. I mean, you can't suddenly go there and say, I like this, but this is all like, you know, if you want some likes or retweets, which is what a lot of people look for on social exactly. media, you have to have like this strong, I say, I hate it. Like I saw uh, a lot of people, some of our ad free shows, family members say, uh, oh, at the moment I saw the zombies, I switched it off. So you can't say I saw the zombies. I don't know. They can't have a discussion like we are having on social media. And I think it's changed so much. And it's so right, Eric. Sports watching is about uh, about bitching and about talking. Because I have, in my journalism career, people will come to me. And uh, as you said, cricket's so big. The first few questions would be about, oh, A, they'll say, can you get me free tickets? But then they'll go on to oh, <laughs> tell me about this famous cricketer. Oh, you meet him. What is he like in real life? But three minutes in, they start suddenly giving me their opinions. Oh, this guy should have played. That guy should not have played. This is a bad decision. That's a bad decision. I'm like, and then you get bombarded and they expect you to either agree or disagree. So I become the social media platform at that point. So, (laughs) and that's how it should exist. Like, like I said earlier, that's the only way I'll continue to keep my job uh, and make some money. And uh, I think it's the same with wrestling, but like Eric said, I think I, I find it so hard to explain it to young journalists area because you have to keep telling them that it Twitter represents maybe 0.2% of the whole population. You know, the two most successful people I know in my life, my wife and my brother, they've never been on Twitter and they're highly successful people. So, uh, but here I am on Twitter with all these followers talking about cricket and talking about wrestling and all that. That doesn't make me important at all, which is so difficult for me to tell a young journalist because these days journalism is about become uh, unfortunately about how many likes and retweets you get and not how many people actually read your piece, which is a terrible place to be in. I agree. Well, guys, I'll tell you what, I want to do this again with you anytime you want to do it. This is fun. I really, I enjoy talking to both you guys. So, uh, you know, a little bit of me goes a long way, but in the next couple of weeks, if you want to do this again, reach out, man, we'll do it. All right. Well, you better believe that I'm going to take you up on that offer, Eric. But thank you again so much for being on. This was so much fun. And you finally got to meet Budeth for the first time. And that's awesome that I was able to bring that connection to both of you as well. And uh, Eric, just have a great night. And thank you again so much. Thank you again very much, guys. God bless. I really had fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. And now it is time for terms and conditions with our resident expert, Budeth. Well, but at last week, we had a fun cricket rule with a history lesson around it. How about this week? Let's do a term. So what is a bail and what purpose does it serve? 
Um, again, we'll have to go into history to find. I, I think we spoke about wickets and stumps, and I'm not going to get into the, the weeds with that again. We've done that enough <laughs> in our first ever episode. Uh, so I spoke about how there were firstly just two stumps, and then the third stump was added. So the bail, the reference to the bail, again, goes back to uh, what wickets were, which were basically gates. And the bales were used to be on uh, the, the metal on top. So they introduced it into cricket pretty early on. They're just uh, two small pieces of wood, uh, which are kept on top of the stumps. Uh, and the reason for them being there is um, it kind of uh, adds to the whole, uh, how do I put it? Wait, let me think about it. You put me on the spot here with bales. Uh, <laughs> but we've been talking so much wrestling that I've really like forgot my yeah, cricket. Click so, back into the cricket mind. Let's go. I know, I have to. I have to. <laughs> so, so basically in, in cricket, this, it, it's all about like, you know, the stumps, whether you're getting bowled out or whether it's a run out. So when do you know the stump, like what is officially the point where you think the stump has been uprooted or the stump has been disturbed? It's when the bales come off. So uh, because without the bales, just think about it. If the ball just hits the stump, does that mean you're out? Does that mean you're run out or does, does that mean you're bored? Um, not really. Like, you know, to what extent? To avoid all that confusion, the smart people in England back in the 1800s decided to just, you know, they already have using so much wood. So just add two more pieces of tiny wood on top, um, call them the bales, uh, and which really made it easy, which basically meant that, yes, the stump has been d disturbed when the bale actually comes off from its original position. So there are uh, these grooves on top of all three stumps where the bales rest. So if the ball hits the stumps with enough force, the bales come off. And the law says if it's disturbed from its original position, it means it means you're out. So there are still lots of times when the ball might just um, hit the stump, but the bail doesn't come off. That means you're not out. Now it gets a little complicated in case in the case of a run out. So this is like you know. So when it comes to clean bowl, there's one of the ten ways of getting out in this uh, in cricket, which is when the ball dis like you know dis hits your stumps and dislodges the bales, that means you're out bold. It can come off any part of your body. It can not hit any part of your body. That's when it's called clean bold, but that's just a way of speaking. But when it comes to run out and stumpings, so what happens if on one end, because there are stumps on both ends, uh, the bales have been disturbed um, and you still want to run someone out. So the only way to then get someone out is to uproot one of the stumps um, and, you know, either by uh, actually uprooting it while holding the ball in the same hand or by knocking it down by throwing the ball at it so that it completely uproots. It cannot just be bent. It has to come out of the socket. Um, and to, you know, ease all this, they introduced the bales. But now, of course, we have uh, the bales that start, uh, what do you call it? Um, Flickering the lights. <laughs> Flickering with lights, which are the worst bales to use as an umpire, as I do, because they're really heavy and they're very complicated to get going. So you put the battery in, you have to throw them on the ground. They, every time I've umpired with flickering bales, they've never come on. So it's really great. It, it's it's a TV product like we dis, like we were just discussing with Eric. Everything's okay. made for TV, like the flickering bales. Uh, but that is the long winding history of the bales. 
Oh, such good stuff. I think like, like you're saying, the, and the flickering bales too, not just for the television product, it helps the third umpire as well when the review is going, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, now with slow, slow motion cameras and all that, because it goes back to when the bale is dislodged. Right. So it's not when the ball strikes the stump, because that it's just the first that the, the impact is the first impact. But what happens next? If the bales are not dislodged, you're not out. Um, so with stumpings and runouts, it's basically you kind of uh, freeze the frame to see where, where the bat was at the point where the bale was dislodged. So it plays a huge role in cricket. But there are times before we move on when it gets really windy and the bales keep flying off. Mm. Uh, the umpires can decide that, okay, we are playing without... You can either use heavy bales. If you don't have heavy bales, um, then you just take the bales off. But once you take the bales off for that whole inning, you cannot put them back on. And uh, I think it's the same for the second innings as well. Mm. Very, very interesting. And now it is time to go over the ropes. This is where we go over the ropes of the present, back into the past. Bharat did a very great job with Munkerding last week. And this week, I thought I would bring it back to wrestling. So this week, I want to talk very, like I do a, as brief a history lesson as I can, because <laughs> this man had, had a life. We're going to talk about Bruno San Martino today. Bruno San Martino was born in Pizzoferrato, Italy, on October 6th, 1935. He was the youngest of seven children. When he was four years old, his father emigrated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, here in the United States. When the San Martinos all arrived in the United States, Bruno spoke no English, and he was sickly from all of the war years over there in Italy, specifically during World War II. This made him an easy target for bullies in high school, so he turned to weightlifting and wrestling to build himself up. In 1959, Bruno set a world record in bench press with a lift of 565 pounds, which he did without any elbow or wrist wraps at all. That is absolutely crazy. <laughs> that same year, Bruno made his professional wrestling debut in Pittsburgh, pinning Dmitry Gabrowski in a 19-second match. His first match in Madison Square Garden happened just a few weeks later, where he defeated Bull Curry in five minutes. He felt like he was being held back as he was going along his journey and gave his notice to Vince McMahon Sr. and planned to go to San Francisco to work for Roy Shire. While on his way to California, he missed two bookings and as a result was suspended from those territories, including California, leaving San Martino out of work. San Martino stated that he believed that Vince McMahon Sr. had set him up by double booking him and not informing him about it as a way of punishment. Eventually, Bruno San Martino found his way back to New York and worked for the WWWF, again with Vince McMahon Sr. In April of 1963, then WWWF champion Nature Boy Buddy Rogers was hospitalized three times that month for chest pains, and it was decided to make an emergency title switch. So San Martino was chosen to win the belt from the Nature Boy in a match that was supposed to end quickly to not risk Buddy's health any further. So San Martino would win the title on May 17, 1963, defeating Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds. San Martino would hold the belt until he lost it to Ivan Koloff on January 18, 1970 run. 
19, let me say that one again, 1971, <laughs> his run was seven years, eight months, and one day, which is still the longest reign of any WWE champion in the country company's history later in 1972 san martino was asked back by mcmahon senior to regain the title after refusing mcmahon senior's initial offer san martino was offered a percentage of all the gates when he wrestled and a decreased work schedule that only included major arenas eventually on december 10th 1973 san martino regained the wwf heavyweight championship by defeating stan stasiak Early in 1977, San Martino informed McMahon Sr. that he felt he could no longer continue as champion due to his injuries. And on April 30th, 1977, he was defeated by superstar Billy Graham for the title. His second title run only lasted three years, four months, and 20 days. And San Martino retired from North American wrestling full-time in 1981 in a match at the Meadowlands Arena. San Martino would pin George the Animal Steel in that match. San Martino would go on to Japan to finish up his full-time career, and then he would be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame on April 6, 2013 at Madison Square Garden. He unfortunately passed away on April 18, 2018 at the age of 82 from multiple organ failure due to heart problems. And that is the very, very brief version of Bruno San Martino's life and career. He did so much that there was no way I could fit it all on our episode here. But what are your thoughts on Bruno San Martino? I still don't think I've seen, I've seen just pictures and brief clips of Bruno San Martino. I don't think I've seen anyone with a broader chest than him. He just seemed to right. have like the, such an incredibly broad chest. Huge. And yeah, and it's it's and I would love to read. I don't know if there's a book out there about him. I would love to get my hands on it. And I'll tell you why. Very recently, Isha and I, uh, my wife and I, we were watching um, this documentary on Netflix about New York, the gangs of New York, and it's all about the Italian mafia and all about these Italian families. Uh, you know, uh, and, and you know, to to the extent you almost feel like. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you have a better grip on this than I do. Like Italians were, um, you know, uh, uh, Italians represented pizza and the mafia <laughs> like mm. this, and, and nothing in between, really. All these names, all these um, gang wars and how the FBI came down on them. And uh, I wonder where Bruno San Martino fit into all that, you know, uh, was, yeah. uh, how did how did that character fit into uh, that scene, especially in New York, like, you know, when he wrestled in Madison uh, uh, Square Gardens, like, were these guys like, you know, in touch with him? Was he heralded as a hero in the Italian community? Right. And I would love to read about that. And uh, maybe next time we have uh, Eric on, which, as we know now, could be in two weeks time. <laughs> I think it'll be great <laughs> to uh, hear him, like, you know, and his memories of Bruno San Martino. But yeah, the broadest chest and uh, yeah, you could see when he passed away in 2018, just the respect and, uh, you know, he, he was Hulk Hogan before Hulk Hogan became Hulk Hogan, at least for Vince McMahon. Without a doubt. And he does have an autobiography, Bruno San Martino, the autobiography of wrestling's living legend. So you can all go out there and check that book out. I'm sure it's a fascinating read. And again, thank you everybody for tuning in to Chop On. We really appreciate the love and support we have received. 
And once again, thank you to Eric Bischoff for being on. 83 Weeks with Conrad Thompson releases on Mondays. For the Heat is at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That is a radio show, and you can listen to that at ForTheHeat.com. We drop our episodes every Wednesday in the United States at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Thursdays in India at 6 a.m. IST, and 10 a.m. ACST in Australia. But at any last words for our listeners before we head out of here this week? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm still uh, getting goosebumps. Like, we had a very special show. Uh, you know, who better than Eric Bischoff to come and uh, add context to what we, are, we, we have been talking about these last few weeks. We are, like I say, we continue to get closer to uniting the world, like, you know, the two worlds of cricket and wrestling. Um, and, yeah, this week it was all about uh, Eric Bischoff pushing us in the right direction. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ChopOnPod. On Twitter, he is at BeastieBoy07. I am at TheRajiv8. Keep chopping on, people.